Our scripture reading for today is found in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostle, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again. Uh, once again, it is good to be with you. If you're in person with us, thanks for coming and being here. And uh, if you're on YouTube, thank you for joining with us in worship. Uh, if you are on YouTube, it's our hope that you come and join us in person, if you're able, as soon as you're able. Um, and if you're new virtually to North Cross, we just ask that you email us, let us know you're there. Um, Info at northcrosschurch.com, Sid at northcrosschurch.com. That's my personal email. I'm happy to hear from you. If you're new here in person, and we're just really glad you're here, and we hope you feel welcomed. And there is a welcome table out in the foyer, the lobby. Some people dare to say call the narthex, um, but really the lobby or the foyer is fine. Um, you can get, there's a table out there. You can get a mug. You can, you can sign up if you'd like some emails and information about what we're up to. Uh, we promise not to harass you too much. Um, and if you're not exactly new or you're looking for the next step to get more involved in North Cross as a community, I'd once again shamelessly plug life groups. And this, that is your opportunity to step into community in someone's living room, usually literally, and get to know one another and pray with one another and talk about life and, and, and study the scriptures together. Well, I'm thankful to study the scriptures this morning with you to open them up and to see what God has to say to us this morning. And we're continuing in our letter to the Ephesians, as you just heard read, and we're looking in particular at God's vision for the church, who the church is and who the church is becoming. And really, we've been saying this, it's, it's, it is and it's always meant to be an ordinary looking miracle. And that's what's so impressive and also so uh, frustrating, also so surprising about uh, the church is that it's an ordinary miracle, ordinary looking miracle. And this week, after a short break from last week, we're picking back up chapter four, book of Ephesians, right in the middle. Um, if you're here with us two weeks ago, you, we did talk a fair amount about those first six verses of chapter four and unity as a concept. Um, and this morning, our passage is going to add to unity the ideas of diversity and maturity. So chapter four so far has a lot of itties, I-T-Ys. Um, so, as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself, so we're going to pause, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to study these scriptures together and learn from God. So, would you pray for our time in God's words to us this morning? Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to stand under your word. 
um, to sit at your feet, really, and to learn from you, Jesus, by your spirit, through these words that have been passed down from generation to generation, over continents, over oceans. And we thank you um, for the preservation that it took to get these words to us. I thank you that you're telling us about who you are and who we are. And I pray that you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and even the hearts to believe that you are in the midst of us, that you're working mightily in us and through us in the church. But also, Jesus, not all of us are on the same page, and we want to acknowledge that, and we ask that you pursue us individually. By your Spirit, would you chase us down if we're hiding? Would you run alongside us if we're running and tired? Would you um, help us carry our own burdens and also other burdens in love? And would you do that even that work even by this scripture this morning? And would you, Jesus, be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? We ask this in your name. Amen. Move this back a little bit. All right. So it was just 20 degrees and it was a snowy, cold morning. And a group of 20,000 individuals huddled around a large porch with kind of deep, wide steps. The year was 1961. The event that everyone squinted into the bright sunlight to see was the inauguration of a soon-to-be president of the United States of America, John F. Kennedy. He was, and still is, I had to Google this, the youngest president that was ever elected, 43 years old. He was the first Roman Catholic to ever be president, uh, and it was the only until Joe Biden was elected recently. And finally, John F. Kennedy had defeated the candidate um, who was the vice president, uh, acting vice president, Richard Nixon, by one of the narrowest margins of victory in the history of presidential elections. And many would go on to say that the reason that he actually won came down to face makeup, that he wore makeup in the televised debates for the first time and looked and the polling afterwards indicated that people trusted him more than Nixon. So what does the youngest first Catholic narrowly elected president of the United States say in his first speech as commander in chief of the United States of America? What famous phrase sticks in our hearts and minds of the many, many uh, edited and re-edited and, and honed and fraught and prayed over and cried over phrases that Kennedy and Ted Sorensen wrote? What famous phrase? Was it a piece of flattery? Like something like, the bravest nation of the most advanced global moment. <laughs> Was it some clever image? Something like, these United States are drawn from blood thicker than water. Was it a fantastic promise? Something like, I will serve you with my every last breath, tear, and smile. No. No. What sticks from that, in the face of barely making it as president of the United States, barely making it to that podium in that moment, for a variety of religious and biological and, well, political reasons, is... John F. Kennedy gave his people a challenge. And that challenge, Kennedy famously said, and I'm sure some of you can quote it from memory, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. 
Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In other words, what America needed at that moment, and arguably maybe needs right now, I'm not here to do that, but I'm just saying, um, is not for you to be happier or for me or the government to do something for you. Instead, what America needed in that moment, is, or what we needed in that moment, is for each person to ask themselves the harder question. How can I commit myself to service and sacrifice for the greater good? Whatever you think about JFK, his politics, his personal shenanigans, you have to respect the courage of that ask in that moment, right? That's courageous, especially given all the drama around his election. I wonder if any politician in the 21st century, Republican or Democrat, could actually ask that and be taken seriously in the 21st century let alone surge to a 75% approval rating after that speech. But let's not lose the point. JFK's request is very, very similar to Paul's request in this passage this morning. Essentially, Paul is saying this, ask not what the body of Christ can do for you. Ask what you can do for the body of Christ. Let me rephrase it in two different ways. Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. Okay, so how's God's approval rating in your heart right now? Okay, second, second way, ask not what your church or other Christians can do for you. Ask what you can do for other Christians in the church. How's my pastor approval rating right now? Sub 75%? (laughs) And really that's, that's the heart of Ephesians chapter four verses seven through 16. It's oh so challenging point. It's meant to be challenging. It's meant to be pointed. If you believe in Jesus and him, Jesus has given you unique gifts that his body, the church, needs. Will you use them here? Will you and I grow up into Jesus? Will we choose to believe it actually is more blessed to give than to receive? Will we invest our truth in love with time, all for Jesus and all for others? But to do that, we gotta receive and we need to rest in two truths. You see, Paul is asking us to give what's actually already been given to us in Jesus. Jesus has gifted us with a gracious diversity that leads us to serve more deeply. And Jesus has gifted us with a gracious diversity that leads us to serve more deeply. And he has gifted us with a connected maturity that leads us to grow up more steadily. He's gifted us with a connected maturity that leads us to grow up more steadily. And these are really just the two points of our outline this morning. Right on cue, wonderful. Okay, so uh, first, verses seven through 12, we'll look at what to do with the gifts of gracious diversity. And second, verses 13 through 16, we'll look at what to do with the gift of a connected maturity. All right, we're gonna begin with the beginning, verses seven through 12, and this grace-based diversity of gifts. Look with me at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here Paul's not talking about the saving kind of grace. Same person, but a different application. Saving grace applies to every Christian but it is given to all of us in the same measure. 
there weren't some of us who were that much closer to Jesus, right? There weren't some of us that were not as spiritually dead. And, you know, really dead as well dead in our sins, right? And re- it's the reality isn't like the Princess Bride movie where there's, there's no degrees of dead. Okay, if you remember that scene. Instead, in verse seven, Paul's talking about the serving kind of grace. God gives each of us different gifts in different measures to equip us to serve. And so it's worth asking, have you identified your spiritual serving gifts? Have you taken the time to do that inventory? Have you asked someone or heard feedback from someone who's not your mom and not your spouse about what you do well in the church or in life? Is it administration? Is it teaching? Is it counseling? Is it hospitality? Is it being with children? Is it being with the elderly? If we take verse seven seriously, those ideas are just the starting point of possible abilities and places to serve. Here's another refreshing, yet also sneakily difficult application or takeaway from verse seven. You are not me, and I am not you in the kingdom of God. You are not me, and I am not you in the kingdom of God. God is not trying to make churches or communities or a world full of identical Christians. This is, there's not to be a kind of North Cross kind of Christian, dresses a certain way, says certain things. Um, there's not to be a Lake Norman kind of Christian, let alone a global kind of Christian. Right? If this whole church is exactly like me and likes what I like and likes what I say every time, then we've messed up somewhere along the line, haven't we? So if you don't exactly resonate with me or someone else sitting behind you, in front of you, or alongside you, across the sanctuary from you, that's a gift, not a problem. That's a gift, not a problem. And it's your and our, my gift to the church. The difference. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis compares Jesus' grace to an individual Christian uh, being salted, okay? Here's what he means by that. Salt used well does not kill the, the flavor of the food, doesn't kill the taste of the egg or the pork or the cabbage. Instead, if you use the right amount of salt, salt's meant to enhance that flavor of that food, to bring it out the natural flavor all the more. And so Jesus's grace works exactly the same way, right? It doesn't kill our natural created personhood, Instead, it enhances our personality, makes it more straight and true by bringing it out our love. From self-preoccupation to sharing ourselves with others more. But in addition to wishing that everyone else was more like me, I can also wish that I was more like everyone else. Does anyone else feel like this? It's insecure, but it's true. So different gifts are differently distributed And that can lead to another problem, envy, envy. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who we're reading the devotional from, he tells this really great story as growing up as a young child in Scotland in the year 1953. In 1953, there was a famous coronation and it was Queen Elizabeth II, who still was reigning as as the United Kingdom's queen. And that happened in 1953, and he was alive at the time, and he was a young boy in Scotland, in this little town. And at that ceremony of the Queen Elizabeth's enthronement and coronation, every child in his Scottish hometown got a little ceramic mug with a picture of Queen Elizabeth on the side of it. And he loved that mug. 
And he describes how he and the children were so pleased that they got a gift just for being children in the year 1953 in this kind of coronation ceremony until their parents started bickering over how much better the different gift that the kids in Edinburgh got and the other towns and cities of Scotland got. And that's how the Christian church can be sometimes, can't it? You are perfectly, you were there. You're perfectly content with your Queen Elizabeth mug, right? Your ability to lead a life group or your discussion or ability with a discussion or your ability to host a baby shower until you see his or her ability to do that or something different. You cry, unfair. You get jealous. I get jealous about my gift when compared to somebody else's. But that's an exercise in missing the point, right? It's a gift. It's a gift. Not everyone has the same gift. All gifts are limited. Look at verse seven. They're measured. And that's not to mention, I didn't do anything to earn or create the gift. It's been given. It's a gift by definition. So that's the point of verses eight through 10. Here Paul's telling us that applying the gospel story. He's saying, look, Jesus dwelt in heaven with God, the father, and he came down to earth as a man and he died a shameful death and he was buried in the lower parts of the earth only to rise from the tomb and ascend on high to the right hand of God, his father, as king of kings and Lord of lords. And according to verse eight, this ascension looked an awful like a historical thing that was going on at the time of this, this letter being written. And it was a Roman general's triumph. It's super important to understand this. There's this parade that happened where a victorious general would come back to his home city and he'd be leading this, these enemies in chains behind him. And they would be he'd be displaying them and all of the gold and precious metals and plunder that he got from the conquering these different cities and towns on his military campaign. And often the victorious general would literally throw gifts up into the air into the crowds of the, of the people. Um, he'd throw gifts like coins into the, to the people and to the crowd gathered to see his triumph. But as we think about this and we think about Jesus and the scene that is being um, compared, notice where we are in the triumph scene. According to verse eight, a close reading of verse eight. I think mentally and emotionally, we immediately say, we're in the crowd. We got our hands up. Throw me some money. <laughs> okay. But we're actually not in that place with a close reading. Verse eight tells us that we are, we are the host of captives. And the victorious King Jesus is giving the gifts of his victory over death and the devil, sins and the world. He's giving those gifts to us as captives. Because you see, Jesus didn't triumph only for us. He had to triumph over us. Each of us was part of the sin and opposition. Under death and the devil, that Jesus had to come and conquer. And so Jesus' triumph is a parade of full of grace, right? Therefore, whatever your gift is, it comes to you from King Jesus and is meant to be a way of celebrating his, not our, achievements. And really finally, wanting other people's gifts to be more like mine or my gifts to be more like theirs misses the purpose of all of our gifts. You see verses 11 and 12 are at pains to tell us that the ministry of our gifts 
whether that's in the history of the church, like apostles and prophets, or in the present day in the form of evangelists and pastors and teachers, all of these gifts of ministry are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry by building up the body of Christ. They're gifts of service, meant to serve others' need, not for getting my needs met. And so verse 13 is giving us a better, more helpful way to measure the health of a church, isn't it? What do we typically do when we measure the health of a church? I know this because I get these questions all the time. How many people go to your church? How big is your building? How big is your budget? Fine. Verse 13 is asking a different question. It's asking this. Does every member of that church see themselves and act like a minister of the church? Does every member of that church see themselves and act like a minister of that church? I don't think this means we need to start a Sunday preaching rotation. (laughs) Don't worry. Where everyone signs up for a Sunday sermon, your turn next week. (laughs) That's against the spirit of verse 11, right? He's given us shepherds and teachers or shepherd teachers, teaching elders. One way of saying that. I do think that means that the American church in particular needs to take more seriously the duty and privilege of non-professional church ministry where every member of the congregation does his or her part, building up the body of Christ. That is making a house, or let's just say a warehouse, more like a home, a spiritual home for all of us. That's what it looks like to build up in love. And this begins with two things for everybody. I want to be real practical. First, each of us needs to pray to be given away. That God would give us the grace to surrender ourselves and our gifts to him, and that God would make us a gift to other people. Second, it's attempting by God's grace to live out of a different mindset, right? A different perspective that that challenge that John F. Kennedy gave at his inauguration, and I'm saying that Paul's inspired version, living out of this perspective. Ask not what the body of Christ can do for you. Ask what you can do for the body of Christ. I'm fine with us asking what we get out of church sometimes, but I'd also like us to ask what does the church get out of us sometimes? Okay, again, popularity approval rate well below 75% of the minister. Okay, (laughs) but this is not just a you project, it's also a me project, okay? Religious professionals, whether they're on staff or pastors, I've just gotta pray to be needed less. I need to be needed. Why do you think I got into this industry? Okay, I got to trust more that God doesn't stop working when I stop working. I need to get out of the way sometimes, out of your way sometimes. Imagine what North Cross would look like if we were a church full of people willing to ask other people out to coffee or a meal more than once and ask about their lives. With no agenda except for being with them and being for them in Jesus' name? Or what if we saw the children in this congregation as our spiritual children? That we had that kind of responsibility and care for them? How would that change the way that we do and view children's ministry, nursery, and youth group? Then, we'd not only be a priesthood of all believers, 
you know, every Christian enjoying direct access to God, we'd also be a ministry of all believers. Every Christian doing Christ's ministry to others. And that deeply biblical vision of church should be, feel both exciting and absolutely overwhelming. <laughs> Shouldn't it? To do church like that, we need, to be, we need to have a connected maturity that we can grow up steady by. And that's our morning's second and last point. Verses 13 through 16. Verse 13 tells us the goal of maturity, right? That we as individuals in the church, that what we strive for, to be mature or full-grown adults, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, is the way that Paul puts it. Simply put, this means Jesus' body, the church, must match Jesus the head. Jesus' body has got to match Jesus' as the head, our head. But verse 14 tells the Ephesian church that it is puny. It's a tiny child's body balancing a great, big, fully grown, enormous head of Jesus, right? And I can resonate with this image personally because I kind of grew up this way, like physically, okay? (laughs) I lived this reality as a toddler, a small child. You can see pictures of it. It's very true. My head was about the same size as it is today on a toddler body. It was like a marshmallow on a pretzel stick. (laughs) Stiff breezes would knock me over. It took me a long time to learn how to walk, far longer than most of you. (laughs) But let's return to verse 14 for a second. (laughs) Paul shifts the image a bit, and he tells his Ephesian church that they're not full of full-grown adults, but children. Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, right? By human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And that doesn't just apply to the first century church in Turkey where Ephesus was, it applies to the 21st century church in America. Like children at Christmas time or at a birthday, we can so easily get fixated on getting more or doing more fun things or more things in general. We can get fixated on doing and, and, and getting more instead of becoming more. What does it look like to become more? We can so quickly define our lives by what we think we need. More good feelings. We need more happiness hits. More good experiences. You know, more Instagram shareable moments for us and our families. More good possessions. Forever homes, better cars, nicer electronics. Tossed to and fro by the waves of self-help, influencers, and Zillow. Eugene Peterson tells a story, and it's a lovely story, about a friend of his that goes on a spiritual retreat to a Benedictine monastery, okay? Uh, The Benedictine order was established in the 6th century um, AD, and for more than 1,500 years has made this really beautiful goal to receive each guest as if receiving Christ himself. It's a really beautiful goal. And so the Benedictine months are rightly considered historically and globally amazing at hospitality. On this friend's retreat, on the first evening after supper, the guest master of the Benedictine monastery gathered all the visitors together and he briefly introduced himself in the grounds and gave them sort of an orientation and the layout. And then he said this memorable phrase, 
Remember, the Benedictines are globally and historically famous for hospitality. Here's what he said. If you find that there is something that you need, come to one of the brothers, and he will tell you how to get along without it. If you find there's something that you need, come to one of the brothers, and he will tell you how to get along without it. That's right. The guest master told these visitors, if you need anything, let a monk know, and he'll teach you how to get along without that need. What's the story driving at? Maybe maturity is recognizing that we don't actually need at least some of what we think we need. What if we lived like this was true? Like we don't always know what makes our lives work. How would that change what we choose to say yes and no to? Do you, do I believe that true refreshment and true renewal is the next achievement? Do we think it's just, it's captured in the next pleasure experience that we're planning for? Is true refreshment and true renewal in the next insight or discovery? What if true refreshment and true renewal came from being connected in unity to others? What if it came from being connected by practicing the presence of our spiritual head, Jesus? Verses 15 and 16 describe these sources of connection by returning to that vivid image of the church as Jesus' body. And they add that kind of connected maturity is not only for Jesus' body to match him, but also for the different parts of Jesus' body to match each other in connection and unity. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly in love. But how do we, as differently gifted and every maturing kind of part, different body parts at different maturity levels, how do we all do this as parts of Jesus? How do we stay connected and how do we grow up in every way in love? The answer is in verse 15, by speaking the truth in love. Defining and applying what it means to speak the truth in love is a whole other sermon, and I will not go there, I promise you. I will just give you a brief definition and a brief application, okay? We tend to think of speaking the truth in love as sort of a balancing act between some truth and some love. Uh, how can we do the same in the same kind of conversation? But really, speaking the truth in love is not some proper proportion of truth and versus love, like two to one, one to two, compliment sandwich. But really, it's speaking the truth in love means loving someone by telling him or her the truth. How often we duck and cover telling the truth to other people, these kind of opportunities, especially in the church. This is because it is so much easier, so much less risky to say nothing or to say something nice and meaningless and empty, isn't it? It takes so much risk of being misunderstood or taken advantage of, um, especially if it's a vulnerable comment or hurting someone else's feelings but we all need words from the outside of us. We are living in our heads all the time because most of us are either way too easy on ourselves or way too hard on ourselves. Yet speaking in the truth in love, truth told lovingly, requires starting with the right motive, doesn't it? We confront and we tell the truth to get closer to somebody, to connect with them, not to keep them at a distance and feel superior, 
We need to ask this question before we say something. Will this comment serve the other person? Or will this comment give me some sort of advantage over the other person? But to speak the truth and to receive the truth in love, we need to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Verse 15. John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us this. Jesus Christ is the only full-grown, perfectly mature human being who ever lived. He is full of grace, that is love, and truth. And we need to not only imitate Jesus, his words and his actions, we need to, we need to dig into and live out this image of growing up into Jesus that he speaks to in this passage, our need to be intimately connected to him at a, at a joint level, a fiber level, as a body is directed and kept alive by its head. But what does our dependence on and following after Jesus actually look like and feel like? And I'd like to end with this image of what it might look like and feel like. Roughly two years after that cold, snowy day in January, when John F. Kennedy delivered that famous inauguration speech, ask not what your country can do for you, there was another famous moment in John F. Kennedy's presidency. Instead of a speech, it's a photograph, black and white, in Look magazine. And this photograph is the president of the United States. He's in the Oval Office. He's sitting at, at this giant desk, and he's dressed in this fine gray suit. There's not a hair out of place. He's wearing this weary but serious mouth expression, and he's staring over some important papers. We've got to believe it's like pre-Cuban Missile Crisis stuff, okay? And he looks uninterruptible, full of truth, full-grown, mature, a man of consequence, right? Perhaps the most important and most highly protected person on the planet in 1963. But peeking out underneath that desk in that photo, where he's hard at work is John John. John John, John F. Kennedy Jr. Curious, precious little three-year-old clutching his toy to his chest in one hand and peeking out of the desk. All of a sudden, the most powerful, distant, full of truth man in 1963 looks and feels different, doesn't he? He's also full of grace and love for his child born to him. John chapter one also tells us in verse 12 this, but to all who did receive him, to all who did receive Christ our head, who believed in his name, those who believe in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. We too get to play at Jesus' feet or God's feet. We too have instant access to all of his power, to all the truth and all the love, even without making an appointment we don't even have to knock. We never interrupt him. He's our father in heaven. We're always a delight to him. All because of grace. Grace holds us fast to Jesus, our head, just like John John holds fast that toy to his heart. That's the image of being connected to Jesus, our head. And that's what gives us the power to be connected to others and to speak the truth in love and to use our gifts to serve others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for giving us 
um, your words to challenge us and to comfort us at the same time. Thank you for um, the gift that it is to study them with this people. And I pray that you would help us to receive that gift and to hold it fast to our hearts, even as you hold us fast to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.